All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask his guidance on our teaching. Father, we're thankful for your word that illuminates our thinking, that your word is the, re- the output of your thinking, is the expression of your a part of your omniscience. It gives us that which we need to know in order to understand what you have created and why you have created it and why you have created us. And Father, as those who are members of the church, the body of Christ, we are new creatures in him, and we have been given a special mission and a special task And Father, as we study the closing words, the closing commission of our Lord Jesus Christ, the end of our study of Matthew, we pray that you might give us insight into its significance and how we fit within the flow of that mandate. And we pray that you would open our understanding to see how these things apply to us. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, and we're going to begin our study of these last three verses in Matthew. We started Matthew, I don't know, four and a half years ago. And I hope that has been a rich study for you as it has been for me. There's a tremendous amount here. It's, uh, it's the longest of the Gospels. And it has, as I pointed out in our introduction, it has the most teaching of our Lord. We have four, or excuse me, five different uh, discourses, teaching of our Lord for different purposes, some of which has been quite misunderstood and misapplied over the ages, so we've had to take a lot of time on that. But when we come to the end here, we see that after the resurrection, Jesus has laid the foundation for the church age. In the past few weeks, as we studied about the resurrection, then we began to look at um, the resurrection appearances, the appearance to Mary, the appearance to the other women that went to the tomb that morning in Matthew 28, 9, the appearance to the two on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then we looked at the appearance to Peter, which is just barely mentioned, but we know that's the time when, in privacy, Peter confessed his sin of denying the Lord, and he realized his forgiveness at that point. And then there's the appearance to the ten. Now, all of these occurred 
on that Resurrection Sunday as we have studied. The appearance to the ten, Judas, of course, by this time has committed suicide, and Thomas was not present. And then the sixth appearance is the appearance to the ten plus Thomas. And then as we came to the end of that section in John 20, verses 30 and 31, John summarizes that that Jesus did many other signs other than the eight that are described in the Gospel of John. He did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, that is, these signs are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And then last time, we studied the next appearance, which is the appearance of Jesus in Galilee to his uh, disciples. But there were only seven there. There um, There are four who are missing. He appeared to those seven, and this is when we emphasize that in the first part of the narrative, he is providing the fish for the men as they're out fishing and demonstrating that he is the source of their nourishment. He, he will provide all of their needs. And then when they recognize him on the shore and they come ashore and he has prepared breakfast, he's again feeding them, providing for them, and this becomes the object lesson for his conversation with Peter. And when he is talking to Peter then, uh, he emphasizes that their their role is to feed the sheep. That's one of several different ways in which this mission that is given the church is identified. The reason I say that is because we live in a time today when as a result of maybe the specificity of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. This is elevated. It's called the Great Commission, and this is elevated as if these other statements uh, don't don't occur. And what, we're, what we will be reminded of this morning and what we see is that there were many different times that Jesus stated the mission in different ways. So this isn't the only time that, that he does this. What we know in terms of his activities is that following that morning, Jesus, according to the um, these verses, verse 16 in Matthew 28, Jesus met with his disciples on a mountain. Matthew 28, 16, we read, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee. Now that's just a summary statement. Once Matthew gets us to a certain point... He just really compresses and summarizes what happens after that. He doesn't talk about all of the appearances to the disciples. He doesn't talk about uh, anything that Jesus uh, talked. He doesn't talk about the conversation there on the Sea of Galilee with the other disciples. He just compresses and summarizes what Jesus did and said. And so... Uh, we read in verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed to them. Now we know that his first appearance to them after they went to Galilee was what we studied last week in John 21. It was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So this would be another appearance. Some people identify this with his appearance to the 500 that's mentioned in First Corinthians chapter 15. But this seems to be a 
an appearance that just involves the 11 disciples, and he is giving them their apostolic mission at, at this point. We know also from uh, 1 Corinthians that he appeared sometime uh, during this time to James, the half-brother of the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he uh, appeared to, uh, Paul says, he appeared to, to Paul uh, as one out of order. It was some time later, but there's that physical appearance that um, took place. So as we look at this, I want to take a little time as we look at this passage to analyze the context because it will help us understand a little bit about what's going on here because we have to look at this in terms of what it is saying and not what is usually imputed to it. You know, there are a lot of things that are said about this particular passage, and so we have to be careful that we interpret it correctly. In verses 18 through 20, we read, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, as we look at this passage, we're going to have to, first of all, understand a little bit about the setting when they go to this mountain, but then we have to look at what Jesus, what is said here in terms of what Jesus said. First of all, he makes a statement that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What does that mean? Don't run past that too fast. What does it mean when he says, all authority has been given to me? What does he mean, all? And what realm of authority? is he talking about here? Second, he says, Go therefore. And there have been, I dare say, hundreds of thousands of missionary sermons based on this, um, as it's expressed in English with a command to go. Therefore, you should go and be a missionary. But it's not a command in the Greek. It is a participle. The only command in these verses is to make disciples. So the command isn't to go. The command is to make disciples, which is the next statement. Go therefore, and then he says, make disciples of all nations. What exactly does that mean? Now, if you think about this, making disciples has become a a real buzzword in evangelical Christianity since the post-World War II era. You have discipleship groups. You have uh, discipleship programs. You have all kinds of things related to discipleship. And you really, when you hear that phrase today, what probably comes to most people's mind is that there's one way to do this, and that's with a small group, because that's what Jesus did. He had a small group of 12 disciples. But we're going to have to look at Scripture to see if that's so. Then we have the phrase, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
What is the significance of this phrase? What is being talked about here? Fifth, it's then stated, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Neither of these terms, baptism or teaching, are imperatives. So how are we to understand that? And then sixth, Jesus makes the closing statement, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we'll look at this today and wrap it up next week, just before I head off to to Israel. Now, as we look at these events, when we look at the context, we recognize that Matthew doesn't record all of the appearances of our Lord to his disciples. In fact, the last time that we were in Matthew specifically, I pointed out that at this particular point, Matthew just begins to summarize and compress these events. He doesn't go into all of the details. What we have seen so far in Matthew, back in Matthew 28.5, the women have come to the tomb. Uh, One of the angels is at the tomb and addresses the women on that resurrection morning. And after showing them the empty tomb, she says what? She says, you need to go meet the Lord in Galilee. That was the last thing that our Lord told them before the crucifixion was, go before me and I'll meet you in Galilee. But they didn't believe him. They're still in Jerusalem, which shows that they never understood that he was going to be raised from the dead. They were skeptical. They were doubting. It never occurred to them when the tomb was empty that that um, that they were going to really meet him in Galilee. In verse 9, as the women leave the tomb, our Lord appeared to them. And what does he say to them in verse 9 and 10? He says in verse 10, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So again, they're told to tell the disciples to go to Galilee. So what can we assume from that? that when they did report to the disciples, they told them to go to Galilee. Did they go? No, they didn't go. All of this, remember, is in the morning of the Resurrection Sunday. What we learn is that Jesus later will appear to Peter. Later, as we saw, he appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they report back that they've seen the resurrected Lord, and then the Lord appeared to them, appeared to the ten. All of that was on that uh, on that Resurrection Sunday. They're still not leaving and going to Galilee. They are there for another week through the feast day, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would have ended the next Sabbath. And so the next Sunday morning is when Jesus appeared, and that's when uh, Thomas is with them. And we have the uh, scenario with Thomas uh, believing that the Lord has now uh, been raised from the dead. So finally, they get it. And they go to Galilee. And the next scene, as we saw last time, is the seven who are fishing on uh, at Galilee, and they're not catching anything, and Jesus provided uh, the fish for them, and then Jesus cooks their breakfast for them. And at that point, he is talking to, uh, to Peter, and he gives a mission statement uh, there to Peter. And he tells Peter that you are to feed my sheep. 
And he states it three different ways, as I pointed out last time. One is, has the idea of feeding my little lambs, uh, providing for the spiritually young, the spiritual newborns, feeding them. Then the second way he states it, he says, shepherd my lambs. And there he uses a term where he's talking about older, mature lambs. And he uses the phrase for leading, for being a shepherd. And then the third time he goes back to the first word, which has to do with tending or feeding, and then it's directed towards the uh, mature sheep. The point of this is if you just had the gospel of John, what you would hear is that the primary mission is to feed the sheep, which is an idiom for saying you need to teach them the word. You need to teach my sheep, my followers, the word. That is that is the mission as expressed by as expressed by Jesus to Peter. Earlier in the second meeting on or the excuse me the first meeting when he met on that uh, resurrection Sunday, he told them, "I am sending you." So again and again, the point is Jesus is telling them in many different ways. I'm sending you out. I'm sending you on a mission. You're to feed the sheep. And here it's expressed in terms of discipleship. We can't separate the command to make disciples from those other commands. They're all related. They help us to understand what's going on here. And it should affect the way we understand or evaluate what is so popular today in terms of small groups because that's not the pattern of the early church. They didn't understand the command that we're to go out and have small discipleship groups. That can really be traced back to some of these campus ministries that sprung up in the post-World War II era. They had a great impact. You had Navigators, you had Campus Crusade for Christ, you had uh, numerous other groups that were involved in evangelism, that were involved in teaching the word, but that those type parachurch organizations is not the vision that is expressed in what Jesus is teaching uh, his disciples. So we read in Matthew twenty eight, sixteen and seventeen, then the eleven went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed to them And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, I bet that most of you are like me, and when you first read that as a summary, you're thinking they're still doubting the resurrection. Now, that might be possible because, remember, five of the disciples were not there uh, on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus uh, told them where to catch the fish, and then Jesus cooked breakfast for them. But I don't think that's what this is talking about. I think by this time, they believe in the resurrection. They're all there. They all see him in front of them. They've they've heard about Thomas. At that point, they're all believers in the resurrection. I want you to pay attention to what is said here. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. See, the contrast is not with unbelief, of the resurrection, it's in terms of worship. And the basic idea of the word for worship is to submit 
to, to God to submit to his, to his authority. And that is expressed through this word that means to bow the knee. That uh, originally Proskuneo had this idea of throwing a kiss, but it was seen as like a salute to, to a king or a ruler, someone who was in authority over you. So the contrast isn't with unbelief. The contrast is with uncertainty about his authority at this point. I think that's important because, see, the first thing that Jesus says is all authority has been given to me. See, how I always go back and say we have to understand what is said always within the context of what surrounds it. And what surrounds it is, a, is an issue of worship, expression of authority, and in the middle of that, this question about, about doubting. So they're not doubting the resurrection. They may be doubting the mission. So where do we go from here? What do we do now? The religious leaders have crucified you. We are now being hunted down by these religious leaders. What's the game plan? Where do we go from here? And probably it came from the five, I'm just guessing, because the other seven were there on the Sea of Galilee. They would have heard that clear mission statement given to go feed the sheep. Now we get to the next verse in verse 18, and we see the first statement that Jesus makes. Jesus came, so this is at the mountain. Jesus came and he spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now this is an interesting statement. What exactly does he mean when he says all authority? Is this an expression of universal dominion? Is this an expression that he now is the ruler of the earth? Is this an expression of his kingship? That is how much of Christendom historically has understood this. And it's taken some new twists in the 20th century, and it's been read within the context of the history of Pentecostal thought that this is, Jesus now has kingdom authority. I was listening to some videos recently about, um, that had a lot in there about archaeology and this archaeologist who was our tour guide who was speaking kept saying everything about Jesus was about the kingdom and the more she talked it was kingdom this and kingdom that and I thought she doesn't understand anything about the kingdom and that's what's sad today is because we have too many Christians who just think very superficially and don't understand what exactly is going on with all of this stuff related to the kingdom. And so they immediately read this, and they read this as kingdom authority. I want you to turn in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7. Nearly every writer connects this to Daniel 7. But you have to understand that people interpret Daniel 7 usually within a false grid of what happens in the end times. So let's just go over to Daniel 7. One of the most important passages, we've discussed this before. I'm just going to hit a few high points to give us a 
a an understanding of the chronology of these end end time events. And so Daniel 7 is a vision that Daniel has that focuses on these four beasts that arise out of the sea. The sea would be the Gentile nations. And these four beasts represent characteristics of four successive kingdoms. Each one continues certain characteristics of the previous kingdom or the previous animal, and then it culminates in a fourth beast. And we read in verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, as you go through these these previous beasts, you see the succession of these empires from Babylon to Media Persia to Greece, and then this last one is Rome. But Rome has two stages. Rome has the historic Roman Empire, but then there is the picture from here and from the uh, image, uh, the dream that uh, Dan, uh, excuse me, that Nebuchadnezzar had of the statue, that it gets restored. So there's a restored Roman Empire that is made up of ten nations. These are the ten horns mentioned at the end of verse 7. So there's a historical chain here. You go through these different kingdoms, and you're still in the Roman kingdom. It's made up in the future of these ten kingdoms. And then there's another horn, an eleventh one that's called a little horn that pops up. And uh, Daniel says, I was considering the horns... He's meditating. What are these kingdoms about? And he says, Then another horn, a little one, comes up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. Now that's violent. So what he sees is there are these ten nations. Then there's another nation, another power. A horn always represents power or authority. And this little one pops up, and he's going to pluck out three of the others. That indicates a violent takeover by the little horn. He plucks them out by the roots, and uh, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. So he's arrogant, he's pompous. The concept of a lot of eyes indicates knowledge. And then the next thing that we see in this chronology is uh, in the next verse, in verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. So you have these previous events have been taking place on the earth, and then these thrones are put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. This is God the Father. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. All of the whiteness and brilliance all emphasizes his holiness and his righteousness. His thrones like a fiery flame and a burning fire that often represents judgment, and then he has this court before him. It's reminiscent of what we see in the description of the throne of God. We've been studying this a little on Tuesday nights. This represents uh, very close to the, the what John describes as the throne of God at the, before the tribulation begins. Um, and that would fit here. And so it doesn't get into all the events of the tribulation, but this is the heavenly scene of... And it's all about judgment, and that's what the tribulation is. It is God's pouring out of judgment 
on the earth during that seven years. And so this brings us um, to a point where we understand that um, verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, so they each were successive, but it's prolonged for a season and a time. So there's a time when all that power sort of develops and feeds into the next kingdom and culminates in this little horns kingdom. And then he says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven comes to the Ancient of Days. Very similar to the Lamb of God coming to the throne of the Father in John, I mean in Revelation chapter 5, where he's going to take the seven-sealed document, which is his title deed to the earth. So he comes to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. See, this, the giving of dominion and authority to the Son of Man doesn't occur according to the chronology in Daniel 7 until just before he returns to the earth to destroy that fourth and final kingdom. That's not the scenario of Matthew 19, 28, 19. And so to think that when Jesus says all authority there and just out of the blue, you sort of like, you know what a Rorschach test is where you have just an ink blot and you say, oh, what does that look like? And you just sort of use your imagination and say it looks like a butterfly or it looks like a snowman or it looks like the map of China, whatever it is. And that's what people do when they see the phrase all authority has been given to me. They say, oh, this must be, sounds like, it's familiar it must be Daniel 7, and there's no further thought taken. There's no analysis of Daniel 7 there to say, no, that can't be what it's talking about there. And so the picture that we see in Daniel 7 is that God is on his throne. Judgment on the earth is taking place. At that time, there is this fourth kingdom that has come into its final phase and the Antichrist, who is the little kingdom, has taken control. And it is at that time that the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days and he's given dominion and a glory and a kingdom. So our conclusion then is that Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen, when Jesus says, All authority has been given to me, is this is not the delegation of kingdom authority because that doesn't come until just prior to the second coming. This idea of kingdom authority has its roots in Pentecostal theology, which historically was premillennial. But they weren't always so precise in their theology, didn't have a lot of training, and it blended in by the 50s with certain themes that were coming out of amillennialism. Okay, and we'll talk about these things in just, just a minute. And amillennialism is the idea that there's no literal millennium, no literal earthly kingdom, and it's a spiritual kingdom. So that would mean that right now we're living in the kingdom. And that developed into a theology called kingdom now theology. We're now in the kingdom so we can exercise kingdom authority. And that became blended at the same time with 
something that came out of uh, hyper-Calvinism, post-millennialism, the Christian Reconstructionist movement, and it gave rise to a theology called Dominion Theology. And let me see, somebody named Tommy Ice in Wayne House wrote a real thick, detailed book called Dominion Theology, Blessing or Curse, back in the uh, late 80s. And that's when it became popular. Now, this movement has just kept going, and it's been um, very uh, popular in charismatic circles having to do with the restored apostolic movement, something like that. So it got popularized by music. That's one of the reasons I'm real critical, not in a sort of a negative sense, but we have to think about the words we sing and why I'm careful about any terminology in hymns that relate to Jesus presently being a king. Now, in 1978, there was a Pentecostal pastor who was quite well-known and quite influential by the name of Jack Hayford out in Southern California, and he wrote a chorus called Majesty. And some of you have sung that before and probably didn't think a whole lot about the words. That was a popular song in the church that I took over when I went to Irving, and I knew a lot about Jack Hayford and learned a lot about this and pretty much cut it out of our repertoire. Uh, it is in our hymnal, and you can look it up later. But the second strophe, just one verse, but the second strophe reads, Majesty, it's, it's sung to Jesus. And so the second line reads, Majesty, kingdom, authority flow from his throne. Now, who's the his? It's not the father's throne. It's the son's throne. But the son's not on his throne yet. So, But this fits within the whole idea of, of a kingdom authority. Now, the problem is it runs counter to Revelation 3.21, which says to where Jesus is talking to the, uh, the church there, and he says, To him who overcomes, I, that is Jesus, will grant to sit with me on my throne. Now, notice it's a future tense verb. It's talking about something in the future, that after the uh, kingdom comes, then I will be on my throne, and I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down. See, Jesus is presently seated in heaven and sat down with my Father on his throne. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's not seated on his throne. He's not seated on the throne of David. He is not currently the king. That term kingship is applied to Jesus is a Davidic term, and it relates to the Davidic kingship. And the Davidic kingship means he's ruling from the throne of David and has established that kingdom. That's not here today because when that kingdom occurs, the new covenant comes into effect for Israel. It's not in effect now. It was only made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And none of the blessings of the new covenant are present today. There are things that are similar, but they're not the same. And so... When you look forward to this, you recognize that Jesus is seated, seated with the Father on the Father's throne, and he won't get his own throne until he comes as the Son of Man, when that dominion is given to him at the end of the tribulation period. But the impact of singing choruses like this has convinced innumerable Christians today to, that we're now worshiping the King and it's not the Father. Now, we sing a hymn 
I worship the king, but if you carefully exegete the hymn, it's talking about the father in his universal role as the creator and as the king in that sense. So it's not talking about Jesus as the Davidic king. Now, other things we know about Hayford is he not only held to kingdom now theology, but he held to a form of amillennialism. It's, sometimes it's difficult to pin that down. And this is important because what happens is that people start mixing or interpreting Scripture on the basis of their view of the future. These terms I just mentioned, I want to review their definition. Amillennialism, the A at the beginning means no or un. It's like our, our prefix un. And it means no millennium, no literal thousand-year rule of reign, uh, rule of Christ on the earth. And so as the chart shows, right now we're in the church age, but the church age is is the same as this spiritual kingdom and Christ is reigning from his throne in heaven. And so when this present age ends, that's when the second coming occurs. There's no future rapture. There's no future uh, tribulation period. It's just going to end when Jesus comes back. And then we go into eternity. And so Jesus is currently ruling and reigning as the king in heaven. And I've just got to be careful with this kingdom now terminology that is leaked into a lot of contemporary contemporary songs. Postmillennialism is the idea that the church age is eventually going to bring in the kingdom, there'll be continual progress, and that it will bring in the kingdom, and then Jesus comes at the end of that kingdom. So that's blended with kingdom now, because as you get get into this, we're somewhere around the beginning of the kingdom here, and we're getting closer and closer. Now, if you believe in literal interpretation of Scripture, then you have to end up being a premillennialist. It's very clear. There's about seven different times, 1,000, that phrase is, that number is used in Revelation chapter 20. The Satan is bound for a thousand years. After the thousand years, he is released. Christ will reign on the earth for a thousand years. So those numbers must be taken literally because every every other number in Revelation is taken literally. So classic premillennialism is you have Jesus return at the first coming at the end of the tribulation, and then he becomes the king, establishes the Davidic throne in Jerusalem, and that is his thousand-year rule and reign with a literal geophysical kingdom on the earth. But there's a twist. What happened in the late 50s was you, there was a development of an idea that the kingdom's here, it's already, but it's not yet. And they identified the blessings of the church age, like regeneration and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which are similar to but not the same as the blessings of the new covenant. And they said, see, they're the same. The new covenant has been inaugurated, but it's not fully here yet. And so this became known as already not yet, and it's at the foundation of this horrible thing that came out of Dallas Seminary in the late 80s called progressive dispensationalism. It's not progressive. It's not dispensational. And it is this already not yet. But the problem with it, to get already not yet, you have to interpret a lot of the passages in Acts the same way amillennialists do. That way you end up with a kingdom now. 
And so this becomes the problem. Now, when Jesus makes this statement, he says that I have been given all authority. All authority has been given unto me. What authority is he talking about? If he's not talking about kingdom authority, if he's not talking about his authority as the Davidic ruler, what's he talking about? Now, remember... In Matthew, Matthew has shown us that Jesus came with John the Baptist and offered the kingdom in Matthew chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, all the way up till you get to chapter 12. Then he's accused of doing everything he does in the power of Satan, and he announces a judgment on that generation for rejecting him as Messiah. And so the kingdom offer is never given again, Never again does he say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom offer is withdrawn because the kingdom is being postponed until he returns, till he gets that commission from the ancient of days, until he gets the scroll from God the Father, uh, Revelation chapter 5. Until that takes place, the kingdom isn't here at all. We're not in a mystery form of the kingdom. We're not in any form of the kingdom. We are in the church age. So what Jesus is going to say to these guys is it's a new authority base. It's not the authority that you anticipated, which was the authority of being the Davidic king and the king of Israel. It is a distinct authority that is the authority over the church. This is going to be the beginning of the church age and that's the authority that's been given to me and because that authority has been given to me I can commission you to this task and so we have passages in Ephesians and Colossians that emphasize the headship of Christ now headship is simply a metaphor for authority you know some people have come out in other areas of debate and said well headship means like the source of something But that's not what the word means, and it's never used that way in classic Greek literature unless it's talking about the literal physical source of of a river, but it's never applied to the source of of authority in a metaphorical way. In Ephesians 1.22, Paul writes, And he, that is God the Father, put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. That's what it means when it says gave, put all things under his feet. It's then explained in the next clause as making him head over all things to the church. He's the head of the church, Ephesians 4.15. But speaking the truth in love may, uh, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Ephesians 5.23, talking about the relationship of the husband to the wife, the husband is the head of the wife, is also Christ is the head of the church. It's authority. Colossians. Colossians one eighteen, he is the head of the body, the church. Colossians two ten, you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Colossians two nineteen, not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Again and again and again, what we're seeing is Christ is given the authority. He's the head of the church. That's the authority that he is talking about when he, um, when he gives this commission to 
the apostles. This is the focal point. So when he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, then that is the basis. See, that explains and deals with the doubt. The doubt is, what are we going to do now? Who's in control? Where are we going? Jesus, first thing he does is explain that. All authority has been given to me. I'm going to be the head of the church. And then he gives their mission. And when he begins to give his mission, I'll come back to that next time because that's when we get into some really fun and interesting details that that it's really saying while you are going. It starts off with a present participle, and it means while you are going. And it is saying as you go through life, as you go through your course of life, as you go from place to place, make disciples. That's the mission of the church, and we have to understand what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is not synonymous with being a Christian. A disciple is a Christian who has decided to make it their agenda to grow and mature as a believer, to be a fully sold-out student of the Lord Jesus Christ and to serve him. In fact, this is so significant. We've talked about some of this in Matthew with the passages, but there are other passages in Luke and Mark related to this idea of discipleship, that what I've decided to do is as we finish Matthew is to have a short summer series before we get into Ephesians and focus on what is discipleship. What is that all about? So we'll come back next time, finish our study in Matthew, and then when I return from Israel, we'll begin a summer series on what is a disciple and are you one. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that Jesus is our authority. He is the head of the body, the church, that he is not now the king, but he is the head of the church. And as the head of the church, he has given us a mission. And that mission has to do with teaching the word. It has to do with evangelizing the world. It has to do with making the gospel clear to everyone that comes into our path and helping them, pointing them to the direction where they can get good teaching. But the Christian life begins with the Christian birth. And Christian birth begins with simply one thing, and that is trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, believing on Him. And the instant that we believe on Him, we have everlasting life. It is ours forever and ever, and it can never be lost. It is because Jesus paid the price in full. The certificate of debt was canceled on the cross, and so the sin is no longer the issue. The issue is, as John puts it in John 3.18, the issue is believing on Him that those who have not believed are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Father, we pray that anyone listening to this lesson, anyone watching today, anyone here that has never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, that they would understand that is the pure and simple gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray for those who are not with us, some who are uh, desperately ill. We pray for your uh, healing hand on them and comfort for their families. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.